Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Matthew 25, sorry, 20, Matthew 5, verse 21 through 26. I'm going to read this passage. Uh, when we're done reading it, I'm going to read you the first half of Isaiah 40, verse 8 which says the grass withers and the flower fades, and you're gonna respond, but the word of our God will stand forever. And if you can't remember that, it'll be on the screen behind me. But it's just a great response to remind ourselves of the nature of the word we've just read. Matthew chapter five, verse 21. Lord Jesus Christ, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother, whoever insult will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. Father, we come before you. We want to ask you now that you would arouse us in this cold morning to pay attention to our souls and to pay attention to eternity and to pay attention to the sweet and gracious words that you give us to lead us. Where we would ruin ourselves, Lord, you give us your truth to guide us. Lord, we pray that your word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path and it would lead us all the way to heaven. Pray this in Jesus' name, asking for the empowerment of your Holy Spirit on our weak preaching and weak listening. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Our passage is obviously relevant. And it's relevant because it deals with a sin every single one of us face. Everyone struggles with anger. Dr. Robert Jones in his excellent book writes, A Brooding Anger is the name of the book, writes, anger is a universal problem. Amen? Prevalent in every culture, experienced by every generation, no one is isolated from its presence or immune from its poison. It permeates each person and spoils our most intimate relationships. 
Sadly, he writes, this is true even in our Christian homes and churches. All of us have faced anger in others. Some of us blow up in rage. Others of us clam up in bitterness, but all of us know the temptation and sin of anger. I got a snow illustration for you. I thought that'd be fitting. Uh, Years ago, I read that the Inuit peoples of northern Canada, the people often called Eskimos, had 14 different and distinct words for snow. You know, one word for the wet and soggy stuff that makes good snowmen, another for the dry and fluffy stuff that won't even pack together to make a snowball. When snow is everywhere in your life, you wind up with a varied vocabulary to describe what's all around you. The Bible has easily more than 14 words to describe anger and its fruits. The Bible knows that like snow in the North Pole, anger is everywhere in a fallen world. I'm just gonna read you some of those words and as I read you just this list of words from the Bible that describe anger and its relatives, maybe you could ask yourself, How many times have I experienced that kind of anger from others? Or how many times have these expressions of anger been something I inflicted on others? Ephesians 4 speaks of bitterness, wrath, anger, slander, malice, Colossians speaks of slander too and then adds harshness. Galatians 5 speaks of enmity, strife, fits of anger. The Gospel of Mark speaks of Herod having a murderous grudge. Both Luke and Acts tell us that Jesus and the early church often met with rage from their opponents. 1 Corinthians highlights some cousins of anger, rudeness, irritability, resentment. Anger is everywhere. Children, how many of you went an entire week without your parents talking to you about anger? I'm assuming all the brothers and sisters, it was just peace like a river? All week long? We were opening up the windows into the marriages of Emmanuel. What would we see? If we got in on the interactions between roommates and friends, how, much of the, how many of these various shades, slander, harshness, malice, bitterness, rudeness, irritability, resentment, rage, grudges, how many of these things characterize what happens in Christian churches, what happens in Christian homes, what happens in Christian lives. Now, I'm not denying, I just listed off like 15 or 16 kinds of anger. I'm not denying that there isn't this one very special kind of anger that's sinless, that's right. There is such a thing as righteous anger. There's such a thing as righteous anger. If you are angry because you are upset at seeing the glory of God tarnished, and your desires is to see God's name upheld, and that desire is governed by self-control, 
And it walks hand in hand with other virtues like kindness. Then you have righteous anger. But this thing is as rare as diamonds. And we want to be careful that we don't declare all of our anger problems as righteous anger too quickly. Not only is anger everywhere, but anger also goes off like a nuclear bomb in our homes. And it leaves the relationships all around us scorched. The Bible tells us that husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives. The word literally means feed and keep warm. And then it tells us at every opportunity that the primary struggle husbands face is with lovelessness and harshness. And I'm wondering how many wives here this morning feel malnourished and uncherished because of their husband's anger. And how many husbands feel torn down this morning because instead of giving her husband the respect God calls a wife to give, she pours her resentment on him continually for not being all she expected he would be. The Bible tells us, just looking at some of the places anger touches us, the children are to be disciplined and instructed. That includes teaching that touches the interior heart and the posterior behind. But what happens when a child faces dad's rage over and over? or gets mom's cold bitterness. They wind up, according to Ephesians chapter six, provoked to anger. Anger begets anger. Many preachers looked at marriages, looked at child training, many preachers berate their congregations with angry tirades. And what's the fruit? Absolutely nothing good. Because James tells us the anger of man does not produce the righteous good. But it feels like it will, doesn't it? I mean, come on. In that moment when you think something needs to change, there is this deep belief in our spirits that a blast of anger, a pointed prick of anger will fix what's in front of us. And if it wasn't for the word of God telling us it won't do anything, we would believe the lie that anger is pivotal, catalytic in changing, but it changes nothing. Some of us uh, dismiss our anger because, yeah, I got a sharp tongue, you know, it's just the way I was wired. But Proverbs 12, 18 says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. How many divisions, brothers and sisters, how many divisions in the home and divisions in the church come from angry hearts carelessly stabbing about with a sharp word? Probably one of the most foolish sayings ever invented. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's delusional. The reality is sticks and stones can break your bones and words can, told, can cause untold damage. I'm just tilling the ground here, beloved, because I'm aware as I say these things that I'm, uh, 
reminding some of you of some of the deepest hurts you've ever experienced. I also know that I'm, I'm dealing with a reality and a sin that's prevalent in our midst, but doesn't get the attention it deserves in my life or yours because it's what Jerry Bridges calls a respectable sin. You know, I have never had someone come to me in 20 years of pastoral ministry and tell me a joke about the last time they looked at pornography. But I have had untold people tell me jokes about the last time they were angry. We do not deal with this sin with equal weights and measures. We do not give it the attention it deserves. And I would submit to you that we stifle and stop the glorious work of the Holy Spirit in our midst by grieving Him with our anger. Many of us have to soberly and sadly face the fact that many of our difficulties in keeping warm relationships, guarding a warm marriage, raising kids who thrive in hope instead of sink in hopelessness, many of our trials are because of us. It's our anger that's the problem. Some of you are tolerating little bits of slander that someday may tear this very church apart right in half. Some of you are allowing anger to thrive in your homes or in your marriages. And right now in your marriage, there might be enough give, enough elasticity to kiss and make up, to forgive and forget. But in 20 years, you'll find yourself on the edge of divorce when he or she is done with your anger. Your anger will have torn the house that love built down to the ground. Some of you are raising kids that snap in line when you snap at them, but in due time they will flee from you and they will seethe with bitterness at your memory. Some of you kids can only keep your relationships together. Some of you children can only keep your relationships together because you literally have two full-time mediators bringing you together over and over again. But there will be a time when those parents are gone, they're not there, and you and your sibling will despise each other unless you've learned to walk by the Spirit. You will just be one more family where the children don't talk to each other. Our anger must be overcome. If this feels heavy to you, good. Because my desire is to see an area where the Holy Spirit may be so grieved that his work is not happening in our midst with the grace and glory that he desires. And if I could be used of God to destroy that wicked sin that grieves him, and if God would work in you in some of the ways he's worked in me to destroy that sin of anger, it would be the great delight of my soul. Our Lord Jesus Christ is able to disciple us out of anger. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, he is guiding his, his disciples out of the anger that destroys relationships and into the joy of reconciled relationships and into the joy of true worship. Here in Matthew 21 through 26, he's guiding his people into lives of real righteousness and he's turning them away from the emptiness and the hollowness of ceremonial worship that doesn't have any real reality before God. 
He's just finished saying, maybe if you glance your eyes upwards at verse 20, he's just finished saying that, that unless your righteousness, Christians, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. The scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were the goats of real religion. They were the all-star team. They were, they were the, the punctilious ones. They were the ones who'd got it all together and were, were looking super righteous. And Jesus is saying, unless you go beyond them, you're not not going to heaven. And he is not for a minute saying, listen to me, he's not for a minute saying, you need to work harder than the scribes and Pharisees to get to heaven. He's saying, unless you've experienced such a true work of grace in your soul that transforms you from the inside out, then you're not going to heaven. He's not saying, do more than the scribes and the Pharisees. He's saying, if you come to understand my grace, it will so transform you that you will wind up righteous in a way, practically righteous in a way that, that surpasses the most externally righteous people you can imagine. So how does Jesus lead us out of anger? You need to ask yourself this question. You, you, this sermon needs to come to your and my heart. How does Jesus lead you and I out of anger? Answer that question rightly and your eternity will be glorious. Answer that question wrongly and you will ruin everything in this life and the next. The first thing that Jesus teaches us when he leads us out of anger, is how to see its true severity. The first thing Jesus teaches us when he leads us out of anger is how to overcome its true severity. Notice that Jesus increases our sense of the severity of our anger. He begins by quoting the Old Testament law. You see it there in verse 20. You have heard it said. So they knew this. They'd heard the Old Testament law. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. He's quoting from the Ten Commandments. He's quoting from uh, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And he says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And the judgment he's talking about was the judgment of capital punishment. In Leviticus 24, Numbers 35, Exodus 21, Genesis 9, over and over and again it says, the penalty for murder is death. Now just a little aside there, that means that not every act of killing is murder. Right? When the Bible says, like it does in Genesis 9, 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he was made. It's saying that when someone murders, their life is to be taken, but that second death is not murder. It's a lawful killing, it's a lawful execution that really gives the full weight to the murder that happened. And so Jesus starts by just reminding these people of the Old Testament law. He's like, okay, here's the Ten Commandments 101. Here's the basics. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. You know that. This is basic Old Testament ethics, says Jesus. If you kill someone, your life will be taken. He's just reminding them of the basics. But then he does something that shocked, would have shocked every single person who heard his voice. 
He takes what he's just said about murder and he fills it out so that it applies to every act of sinful anger. Verse 22, but I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you, here's the law fulfiller giving us the deepest and fullest expression of the law. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, what's amazing here is that Jesus is doing with anger the same thing he will do We'll see this next week, Lord willing, with lust. With lust, we're going to read that he says, whoever lusts has committed adultery. He, he raises it up so we see the heart behind adultery. And he says, the lust that's behind adultery is adultery. He, he raises the bar. He, he reflects that the, the heart is the most important thing. Whoever lusts has committed adultery. Now, here's what he says. Whoever's angry has committed murder. And he goes on to say that whoever's committed that kind of murder in their hearts is not simply liable to the death penalty. How can a criminal court ever establish anger? Jesus is not dealing with what criminal courts ought to deal with here. He's establishing what will happen to an angry person before the court of God. And he says this, he says, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, and here's where Jesus gets to his main point, will be liable to the hell of fire. That little phrase, hell of fire, is literally the Gehenna of fire. And the valley of Gehenna was a valley just outside of Jerusalem, which had been used for the most abominable practice of child sacrifice. And by the time of Jesus, that valley that had been used for child sacrifice was now a valley that was used as a permanent city dump. So it was this accursed place where the fire was always burning. And Jesus uses it as a picture of eternal damnation and hell. And he says, whoever is angry will be liable to hell. He says, whoever is angry will face the eternal judgment of hell. Now just think about this for a minute and feel the weight of it. Jesus, as the law fulfiller, turns up the law and says, you've heard it said murder's wrong. I want you to see that anger's wrong. And then he turns up the sentencing You've heard that murder receives the death penalty. I want you to understand that anger receives eternal death and damnation in hell. The primary reason most of us do not get the victory over angry anger we must get is because we do not give it its due. We do not recognize it with the seriousness with which it ought to be recognized. If you thought that every time you got an ingrown toenail, 
that that ingrown toenail was going to be cancerous and was gonna kill you, you'd be at the doctor's office for ingrown toenails. As it is, we just ignore ingrown toenails because they're, no, they're no big deal, it's a little minor inconvenience. But anger is no spiritual bump. It's not, it's not simply a bump on the road. It's not, it's not simply just a small obstacle in the path. It is a sin which undealt with will damn every soul. And Jesus is talking to disciples the way Jesus talks to disciples. Jesus does not talk to his disciples and say, now all this stuff about hell, it doesn't really apply to you. All this stuff about damnation, I want you to know that's for the other guys. He speaks to his people and he warns his people that if they are given to anger, that if they let themselves walk in a path of anger, they will be damned. They will burn forever in the valley of Gehenna. And if that seems like a bit much, Jesus actually is willing to take it a bit further because he tells us that the kinds of expressions of anger that he's talking about are not just Hitler on some angry tirade or a mass murderer seething with murderous intentions. It's just the guy who says, you fool. It's just the woman who says, you moron. It's just the person who says, that nincompoop, that idiot. The person who uses language that diminishes and degrades other people is revealing in their heart the kind of anger that Jesus damns. A.B. Bruce perfectly summarizes the two words and shows how the anger they express murders a man's being in our minds. Haraka, the word the KJV translates insult, he says, expresses contempt for a man's head. You stupid, or more, the word that's translated you fool, expresses contempt for his heart and character. You scoundrel. Together, these words express a degradation of the entire man, his head and his heart. And to degrade a man's head and his heart like that is to kill the man in your mind. And it is as easy, evil, and as damnable as murder. If you kill a man, God said in Genesis 9, you have killed the image of God. That's why the death penalty had to ensue because God wants to always honor the dignity of humanity. No matter how sinful a human is, they are always made in the image of God and no one has ever murdered them as if they weren't the representatives of God, amen? But when we say you fool, you idiot, we do mentally what a knife does murderously. We do in our own hearts what other people do with guns. Now, some of you are listening to this and go, okay, okay, okay I, I hear Jesus. But isn't the world full of idiots and fools? And am I really damnable for calling it like it is? For calling a spade a spade? For calling an idiot an idiot? What could be so damnable about that? What's so worthy of hell in expressing that other people are idiots and fools is that when you do, you show that you do not understand just how much you are one of them. The true Christian cultivates a heart that sees idiocy and folly 
and primarily says, that was me. Remember, the true Christian, according to the Beatitudes, is marked by a poverty of spirit, a meekness, a mercy. They do not know a greater fool than themselves. If you know a greater fool than yourself, it's because of a lack of grace in yourself. Think of Paul's words to Titus. And I'm going to read a bit of an extended passage. Hear every word of this. Listen to, listen to the way Paul reasons with Titus. He tells Titus that the Christians Titus is caring for are to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people, even the idiots and fools. To show perfect courtesy towards all people. Why? Verse three, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Beloved, when your heart is overcome with anger, it is not overcome with gospel truth. That's just, it's just that simple. When I am looking at the world as full of idiots and fools, I am forgetting that idiot and fool number 101 is right here. That the idiot and fool who disobeyed his parents, the idiot and fool who pursued satisfaction, in my case, in drugs and alcohol, the idiot and fool who thought he could invent his own life by however he wanted to do it, the number one idiot and fool who ignored instruction and pursued all kinds of wickedness is looking at me. I'm looking at the man in the mirror. I found he could never change his ways, right? Nothing could make it any clearer. I tried to make the world a better place. It was a disaster. Okay, enough Michael Jackson. The reality is that when we are aware of our own sinfulness and the grace we've been given, it may allow us to see sin in the world but it robs us, it, it keeps us from seeing the whole world of sinners as a bunch of idiots and fools. How many of us are being discipled by conservative politics that exposes the idiocy in the world while poisoning your soul with a poison that will take you to hell? How hard is it for Christians to see their own anger? It's actually harder for Christians to see anger. Why is it so hard for Christians to see anger? Because if you're a real Christian, the things that make you mad are actually problems. Right? You're right. You know this. You have the sense of it. But they should be like this. And you're right. But they shouldn't do all that garbage. And you're right. They shouldn't teach those lies. You're right. And in the midst of the rightness, you can be so wrong, you're damned. You can be poisoning your own soul with something that will take you to hell all the while that you're seeing all the things that keep others from heaven. What a deceptive, deceptive 
sin this is, how much we need each other, how much we need the body of Christ to help us to see this, how much we're in need of people who will show us our own anger and will, will make us aware of where instead of being kind and gracious and gentle as we expose sin, we've become irritable and frustrated and angry. We have got to see the severity of anger, how severe sin it is, how severe its consequences are. But we have to see a second thing. We have to see the priority of anger. We started by seeing anger's severity. Now we need to see anger's priority. And I don't mean the priority of getting angry. I mean the priority of dealing with anger. Again, children, it, it ought to terrify you if you can fight with your siblings and go to sleep at night without reconciling. That ought to trouble you deeply. Because what it shows is it shows a heart that doesn't understand the priority of anger. It doesn't understand how much God wants you to deal with it. So what happens here in this passage is Jesus lays down the teaching. The teaching is like this. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. The one who murders is liable to judgment. But I say unto you, if you call someone an idiot or fool, you're deserving of hell. There's the teaching. And then what he does is he gives two illustrations. Two illustrations. Many a preacher could learn from Jesus, Right? There's some preachers that are too spiritual and too holy for illustrations. Jesus, one point, two illustrations. He's good at this. First illustration shows us this. The priority we ought to place on dealing with anger. That we ought to deal with anger as a higher priority than our ceremonial worship of God. That it's, it's more important, just to place it in our time, in our language right now, it's more important to go and repent to someone you've been angry with than it is to go to church. You'd be better off missing the Lord's Supper and repenting to someone you were angry with than you would be making sure you never missed a Sunday and you always went to the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm going to say all kinds of positive things about Sundays and the Lord's Supper here in a second. No one should take what I'm saying to mean that Sundays don't matter and the Lord's Supper doesn't matter, but I'm talking about priority. And Jesus lays out the priority very well. I mean, the, the, the illustration is just as plain as day. It's a great illustration. Look at it there in verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, remember he's speaking to Old Testament Jews. Principle applies for all time. He's speaking to Old Testament Jews who would have offered gifts and sacrifices at the altar in the temple in Jerusalem, and he says, if you're, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first, there's the priority, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gifts. Now, what's really striking about this illustration is if you remember that Jesus was giving this illustration to the people who were listening to him in the northern province of Galilee. That is, the people he was talking to were 80 miles away from Jerusalem where the altar was where you offered your gifts. 
So the illustration goes like this. If you're down in Jerusalem offering your gift and you recognize that your anger has so offended someone that they have something against you, leave your gift right there, march yourself 80 miles back home and there deal with the reconciliation and then come back and then we'll talk. That's striking. It means that Jesus wants us to prioritize even extreme measures to get right with those we've offended and then come to him in corporate worship. This teaching, uh, really, we find it throughout the Bible, right? In in, uh, Isaiah chapter 1, what do we learn in Isaiah chapter 1? Here's these people sacrificing to God, offering all their bulls and their lambs, and and God says to them, "What, what are your sacrifices to me? I'm not even interested in this, God says. Because while you're always coming and worshiping me, at the same time, you are punching other people, you're oppressing people, your hands are full of blood. Same principle, 1 Peter chapter 3. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And if you don't, your prayers will be hindered. 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthians, you're coming to the Lord's Supper, you're all dutifully there, you're all eating the bread, drinking the wine, you're doing it. Meanwhile, you're living in unloving ways towards other believers, and he says, what you're doing, he says, this is the language, listen to this, he goes, is not even the Lord's Supper. When our worship ceremonies and our worship services develop an extreme disjunction, between the service and the real life, to, to God, the service is nothing. He, he wants the reality above the ceremony. And so we have to recognize here that we're to prioritize dealing with people. Now listen to this, notice this. I love the illustration because he doesn't just say, get right with God in your heart. Like with anger, we don't just say, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. Psalm 51. That's a true sentiment. It is true that your anger is first and foremost against God and God only. But there's also someone you've affected, someone your words have wounded, someone you've embittered, someone you've exasperated. There are real people affected by our anger, and they are to watch you leave ceremonial worship, come to them, and repent. And what kind of reality begins to grip a church when the church knows that's the kind of people they're surrounded by? What what kind of sweetness begins to get into a marriage and into a family when people know, hey, mom, dad, my roommate, that's the kind of person that values their unity with me above putting their hands up in worship. Now you're starting to deal with real worship, real church, reality. Jesus is calling for that kind of priority. Just one more thing I'll mention about that that I'm gonna move on. In the book of Joel, you can go read this for yourself this afternoon, Joel chapter two, there's this call to come repent. And so God's calling the people to come to a convocation of repentance. Then you know what he says? He says, let the bridegroom and the bride leave their wedding chamber. In other words, if I call you to repentance on your wedding night, you leave that and you come and repent. It's just the same expression of the high priority 
Could it, could it be, could be the healthiest Sunday at Emmanuel? If no one takes the Lord's Supper, everyone leaves after the service, gets things right with someone, and then came again the next week. No, I'm not saying that's what everyone needs to do, but if that's what God's laying on your heart, don't, 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 don't say that's impractical. That may be the very pathway to a great outpouring of God's Spirit on this people. I love, I love the D.L. Moody story where he's preaching and preaching and preaching at this series of meetings. D.L. Moody, the evangelist, in the 1800s, is preaching and preaching at these series of meetings, and nothing's happening. Moody saw people saved every day, but at these meetings, nothing's happening. And he says, I wonder if there's a spirit of unforgiveness somewhere in these meetings. And one of the leaders of the meetings who's sitting behind him pops up and leaves and is gone. He goes and is reconciled with someone that he's got a offense against. Comes back the next night and the Spirit of God begins to move in saving power in those meetings. Oh, if God would disrupt our ceremonies to make sure we had reality, it would be a glorious thing. Notice the second illustration. Jesus is impressing on us the severity of our anger. It's worthy of hell. The priority of dealing with it. It's more important than our ceremonials, more important than your prayer time, more important than taking the Lord's Supper, more important than offering a sacrifice in the Old Testament. And the third thing after severity and priority is he shows us an illustration that shows us the urgency. The urgency of dealing with with anger. Notice the uh, illustration there in verse 25. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Now, what should we make of this illustration? I'm going to be honest with you. I've I've had trouble with this illustration. Uh, I've had trouble understanding it for a number of years. I always kind of found it like, okay, Jesus teaches on anger, tells us not to be anger, and then sort of there's, and in case this has gotten you in legal trouble, here's what you do. So sort of how I always took it, and I I couldn't quite figure, felt a little bit out of place. But I think Kent Hughes nails the point of the illustration. And what he does, he says this, He focuses on the urgency of dealing with the situation before the full weight of the law comes crashing down on us. Hughes writes, Jesus' advice is to do what you can to make amends and do it quickly. If you do not, an inevitable process like the legal process will catch up with you and you will have to pay the maximum penalty. Personal conflicts, Hughes continues, can often be resolved if dealt with quickly. However, if one puts off dealing with them, you and everyone else will pay. We dare not ignore Jesus. So the idea here is, listen, when you are see that someone's accusing you of anger or there's there's a situation where anger has created division, you need to think about this as the legal process that might get started. And if you don't deal with it, it will carry through. Your accuser will go to the judge, the judge will go to the guard, the judge, the guard will put you in prison and you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. And honestly, if we read the illustration in light of the teaching, The idea would be this. If you don't deal with anger, the inevitable judgment of hell will come to you. The inevitable legal decision of God against you 
will deal with you. So we're called to deal with, we'll see the severity of our sin. We're called to see the priority of our anger, dealing with our anger. And here he calls us to deal with the aftermath of our anger with utmost urgency. The way the Apostle Paul will talk about this is he'll say, do not let the sun go down on your anger. How interesting is that? So often the counsel we get with anger is give it time. Give it time. Give it space. How different. Do not let the sun, this is, what are you doing? Don't let a root of bitterness grow. Don't let the devil get a foothold, says Paul. Uh, Jerry Bridges' language for the same idea is nip it in the bud. Deal with it when it's small. Deal with it when it's, when it, on that first offense. Did I say something that offended you just there? I'm sorry, was I a little harsh? Deal with it there and not 25 years later when the person never wants to talk to you in a million years. How can we overcome anger? We must appreciate its severity. Anger is a destroying fire that will lead us to God's destroying fire. We must make it our top priority. Worship can wait. Reconciliation cannot. And we need to deal with it with the utmost urgency. Don't, 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 let, don't let it stew. Don't let it fester. What do you hear when, you, when, you're, when your mom found you had a sliver in your finger? What'd she say? Give that a week? No, you get it out right away before it festers, before it turns rotten. Well, I'm going to leave you with three points of application, and then we'll close. Three points of application. First, a little wisdom. A little wisdom. I cannot leave this sermon without speaking those wise words of the Apostle Paul. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Boy, I preaching, studying this sermon, I went over all the people I've offended, hurt, enemies I've made, in the course of my life and just asking, Lord, have I done everything possible? And then, and then there's a level of comfort to recognize this, that God gives us this wonderfully idealistic command. Go be reconciled. Make it your top priority. Do everything you can. And yet, the Lord knows we live in a fallen world. Sometimes we've, we've tried everything we can to get a relationship back together, to, to make amends, to say we're sorry, to come to a mutual understanding. And sadly, grievously, we can't seem to get to a full and warm embrace. You should not live, you should not live with a cloud of guilt over your head for those realities. Do all you can. Leave your, leave your gift at the altar. Deal with it urgently. Do all you can. Repent of all you can. Say sorry for all you can. And yet, you can't control every person you ever run into. You, you can't get to the eye-to-eye -eye agreement with every person in this fallen world. And you need to understand you're free. After you've done all Jesus has called you to, you're free. And there isn't a hovering guilt over Paul when he can't get along with Barnabas. There isn't a, a stain on Barnabas' soul when he can't get along with Paul. They both go on and are used effectively for the Lord. Second strategy. So first, a little wisdom. Go for it. Do everything you can. I, I wouldn't want to do, say anything that would keep you from doing something radical that needs to be done. 
to be reconciled with a husband, a wife, a child, a friend, an enemy. But there's only so much you can do. That's the little piece of wisdom. Here's the strategy. One of the most important things we can do to fight sin is to, name, is to learn to name it like God does. One of the most important things we can do to fight sin is to name it like God does. We speak of anger in almost every way except the Bible, the way the Bible does. We get steamed, wound up, understandably annoyed, in a foul mood, hot, frustrated, elevated. Then we let off steam, blow our top, clam up, shut down. Those are all, almost all, mechanical terms, not moral terms. Oh, the great evil of letting steam out. And so we excuse ourselves. You, know, it's not, it's, you do it in all kinds of realms, right? It's not murder, it's abortion. It's not fornication, it's shacking up. It's not anger that'll take you to hell, it's just clamming up. And by naming it wrong, we get it all wrong. And so we need to go to those we've offended and say as clearly as we can, I got sinfully angry. I was in a sinful rage. I held a sinful grudge. I was sinfully bitter. I was sinfully unloving and rude. I was sinfully irritable. I was sinfully malicious. I was sinfully unforgiving. Name it. Call it sin. Say it that way to your child. Listen. Here's, here's, here's like great moments in parenting. We're sitting around this wonderful family meal. My kids are talking about nice things they remember about dad. Get this one. This, this, this one, you're like, oh, I really did a great job. Like, dad repented. Like, okay. Wasn't really what I was going for. I was going for God, nailed it. But I'll take dad repented. And that's the process of going to people who they, they could come back at you. They, they could come back at you and, and, and throw on you everything you've ever done. They might. When you repent, you're making yourself very vulnerable. Go for it. It's right in the sight of God. Listen, if you're listening right now, we're saving marriages, we're saving friendships, we're saving the unity of the church right now. And if you're not listening, it's just a matter of time before it all blows up. Call sin, sin. Name your sin to God and then name it to your child, your friend, your spouse, your fellow church member, your non-Christian friends. Call sin, sin. And then you will see that this is the kind of thing Jesus deals with severely and wants to have as our highest priority and is given, wants us to give the greatest urgency to. And there, then, right there, if you're dealing with another Christian, what you might often experience is just grace like you've never known before. It's amazing how when we go to people with pathetic apologies, we get pathetic repentance. You ever experienced that? You're like, I'm, I'm sorry, I kind of, you know, I was kind of out of line. And they're like, okay, I forgive you. You're like, well, is that all you got to say to me? You forgive me? Like, isn't this a big deal? You're the one who treated it like it was nothing. When you go to someone and say, I was hateful towards you. If you feel dead after what I said, it's because what I said was murderous. It's amazing how the response to that from a Christian soul will be often be, I forgive you. It did hurt. Christ is giving me grace to forgive you. 
Finally, vision. Vision. Little wisdom. Do all you can. So far as it depends on you, then you got to stop. <clears throat> Little strategy. Name names. Call sin what it is. Finally, a vision. What's Jesus after in this passage? You ever stop and ask you that? He just wants to tell us what he commands. Well, that's not usually the way God works. Why does he want us to know that he hates anger, that it's damnable, that he wants you to deal with anger before he does anything he commands in terms of ceremonial worship? Why is he doing this? Why is he telling us how severe it is, how urgent it is, what a high priority is? Why is he doing this? Here's the thing. Jesus loves love. Jesus, that's Christy King 101 run right there. Jesus loves love. He, what does he want? He doesn't just want you alone in a closet saying, sorry, I got anger. He wants you reconciled to your brothers and sisters. He, he wants you embracing those you were estranged from. He wants to turn cold shoulders into warm hugs. He wants to turn bitter marriages into warm marriages. He wants to turn estranged children who are angry at their parents into loving children who's got parents who love them. He wants to turn roommates who can't talk to each other anymore into roommates who are in Bible says, Go to your brother first and be reconciled. That's what he's after. That's the goal. It's not just Jesus dropping command bombs. That's not the goal. The goal is that reconciliation. That's what he loves. You know what else he's after? True worship. True worship. Do you notice there at the end of that one illustration? Leave your gift, but that, that he didn't leave it there. He said, then come back. He wants us to come back and worship him after we've made things right. Do you know what the implication of that is? Just, just don't miss this. Do you know what the implication of that is? It means that God wants the worship of known sinners. Right? He didn't, it's not that, hey, come to me, and then some of them are like angry people, so he says, go away, angry people, and then some of them are not angry people. He says, come on in, non-angry people. That's not what's happening. He's like, hey, angry people, go away and come back. That's what he wants. He wants real sinners to worship him. That's what the church is. It's real sinners that worship him. That, by the way, is why you should sing louder next Sunday. I mean, you should just you should belt it out. Because the singing of the church is real sinners worshiping a real God who reconciles them to himself and sees them reconciled to each other. And then last thing in terms of vision is the reason Jesus wants you to deal with this like the court could lead you to the judge and the judge could lead you to the prison and the prison could lead you to be locked up till you've paid the last penny. The real reason he wants that, you know why he's focused on? He's getting you ready for eternity. You and I, we're all about getting ourselves ready for life. We get our middle school kids ready for high school. We get our high school kids ready for college. We get our college kids ready for a trade or a career, a professional career. Uh, we get, when, then as we get into our career, we start getting ourselves ready for retirement. Then if we're really smart, we buy a casket, get ourselves ready for when we're dead. And we spend almost no time getting ourselves ready for eternity. That's the whole point here. 
It's the whole point of your life. The whole point of your life is to get ready for the rest of eternity. And the reason we view God's dealings in our lives as him being so harsh is because we don't understand what he's doing. Because so much of what he's doing makes our life now harder. Amen? But so much of what he's doing is surgical to get you ready for eternity. If exposing sin and getting you on a path of repentance will get you ready for eternity, he's doing great. How's he doing in your life right now? I think he's doing great. He's just pinching, prodding, poking, squeezing all over the place. So if you think he's doing one thing and then you're experiencing another, you're gonna be confused about him. But if you think he's after this, he's trying to get me on a path of repentance to pursue Christ-likeness so I am ready to die and meet him so that I will be found in him, believing in him, so I will hear well done and good, my good and faithful servant. He is just nailing that one. And that's what he's after. Reconciled believers, real worship, and people prepared for eternity. What a good God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We praise you for your piercing, surgical word. Lord, forgive all the places I've been ham-fisted or blunt in my applications, the way that those are harmful. And Lord, take everything that's good and helpful to get anger out and to get true worship and trust in Christ in, we pray you'd bless those weak efforts. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.